Okay, so uh, the uh, topic tonight, uh, and I thought it might be a good opportunity to uh, coalesce a little bit, to regroup. We've introduced a number of new topics, and so uh, I'm calling tonight's lecture, if we can go to the document camera again, uh, but will it be on the test? Uh, facts, interpretations, opinions, and imagery in the study of globalization, let's say since uh, 1492. This course is called Globalization Since 1492. And uh, uh, I think this pertains to the issues that Professor Roncourt brought up, where he felt that the whole grading system is, in a sense, uh, uh, takes away from some of the kind of content of the education, the deeper level of education that comes when there's commitment to uh, getting involved with something and learning about something for its own sake, without a preoccupation about how one will be rewarded through the grading system. But we're, we're uh, well entrenched in that, and I'm fine with that. And it's very important that you have a knowledge about what you can expect on the test. So uh, tonight, I'm going to focus on that. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk in and around. If we can go to the document camera, I think you'll find this particular. Uh, I'm going to talk in and around the global village. Marshall McLuhan, who came up with the phrase, the global village. He is the guru of uh, communications, communications theory. Uh, he was very prominent in the 1960s and 1970s. He's one of the most famous intellectuals and academics that the country has ever uh, produced. Uh, he was a teacher of mine. I took his seminar. And uh, I do recall that uh, the way he analyzed things, it was almost like we already had home computers. And we were already using the internet. And that seemed, I mean, we couldn't have really imagined it, and I didn't really think of it at the time, but when I think back to, to how he spoke and how, what he was, uh, how he was interpreting the world, it was once you get into this electronic form of communication, it's just going to keep replicating and get more efficient and get more pervasive. Uh, so it's almost like he was talking about uh, the world we're living in, only this was uh, 20, 30 years ago. And of course, the global village, if you're on the internet, you do have a sense of living in a kind of global village. Uh, the medium is the massage, the message, the message. Uh, that's another phrase. He tended to be uh, a great talker. And as I recall, people would, in a sense, give him lines. He was, he's, he was an English professor. Uh, and he, he did his uh, PhD thesis on James Joyce. He was also a very committed Roman Catholic. Uh, but a lot of his work was kind of word, word play, uh, coming up with uh, interesting phrases. And, uh, and on and on he would go. Uh, I re remember him saying, you know, the politician of the future is going to be every man. It's not going to be a remarkable person. It's going to be a kind of person that you can identify with. It was almost like he was talking about, say, Ralph Klein. Uh, you know, obviously Ralph Klein exudes the image that you could go out and have a beer with him, and he'd be a, a kind of jovial and convivial figure. Um, so Marsha McLuhan, uh, a big subject, uh, where and what is the West? And uh, you can be almost sure that I'm going to either in the midterm or in the final uh, find a way to uh, ask you about this orienting ourselves to globalization. Remember, that was the, the lecture. And uh, what is this thing, the West? Uh, so we'll, we can get into that. Uh, walls and bridges, uh, networks and convergences, or convergence and networks. Remember, that was a, a topic. And we talked about the Great Wall of China, the Berlin Wall, the Wall of the War on Terror. I'll introduce another wall tonight. Uh, just. Uh, so you have a sense of uh, you know, what, I, what I would feel entitled to ask you about. Um, Arjun Apaterai, uh, remember, ethnoscapes, 
different uh, ways of thinking about globalization, different kind of scapes, technoscapes. Uh, Samuel Huntington, uh, Francis Fukuyama, Vandana Shiva, uh, the World Trade Organization, the Battle of Seattle, uh, the Internet and globalization, um, the Zapatistas use that. Tonight I may uh, have uh, some time to talk about the Zapatistas. Uh, last week we had, and in ref on reflection, I would think it would be one of the most serious discussions that might have happened in this country in the last 10 years on student politics. We, we talked, I think, in a very substantial way about some very major issues inside student union, outside student union, uh, taking actions, uh, what professors and students might do together, um, how, how you go about uh, addressing um, power. And uh, so I, I think, in, in reflection, um, the topic of uh, universities and power, uh, Professor Roncourt had some very controversial things to say about universities essentially legitimizing power, replicating power. I suppose education at this level can be seen as a way where um, maybe elites replicate new, re new elites uh, through the means of education. Uh, he made some drastic uh, allegations that really the questions of how society works with respect to property and material relationships is hardly subject to analysis, is hardly subject to democratic process. But then we also have to face uh, and, and, and be realistic that he's, he's a university professor articulating these things, so he's obviously uh, in a position to criticize power. And so universities are in a position to give legitimacy to power, to d existing hierarchies, to criticize existing hierarchies, uh, in a sense to participate in the replication of power. Uh, and uh, Henry Ford and the Dearborn Independent, I've come back to that uh, a couple of times. So. Um, uh, that's going to be the, uh, the framework or the uh, tapestry <coughs> of tonight's talk, these uh, subjects, in and around these subjects. And uh, it's all in the context of, of a lecture. Actually, Marsha McLuhan would talk about probes. He would say, well, I, I do probes, you know. I, and he really wasn't that interested in uh, any sort of, uh, you know, if you put up your hand and said, uh, I think you're wrong, you know, the, um, that's how, to me, Marshall McLuhan sounded. Some say, my imitation of Pierre Trudeau is somewhat the same, that I seem to be replicating uh, Pierre Trudeau's way of speaking. I don't know if many of you had a chance to uh, hear Trudeau. Um, but uh, he would say, I do probes. And actually, if you, if you try to debate with him and say, you know, your evidence doesn't support your conclusion, or you're inconsistent, you say this, and you, on the one hand, you say this on the other hand, he really didn't seem to be interested in that level of discussion. He was really just interested in kind of exploring concepts, and uh, it, it was, you wouldn't have a sort of linear discussion. Um, so. Uh, It'll have a bit of that tonight, uh, my version of it. Um, but on WebCT, I've drawn attention to this before. Um, I've I've worked uh, been working on this document, and I'm I want you to recognize this is a work in progress. But uh, you know, as I think of uh, being in your position, and here you are in a class called Globalization since 1492. Uh, well, what is it? What are the events? What, what happened between 1492 and now that provides a stream that we might call globalization? So I'm actually uh, attempting to um, lay out a chronology. But then as I got more and more into it, it occurred to me, uh, I thought of a chronology as a few little words about topics. But then I sort of found myself writing little essays. And when I got to an essay that I felt had some original material in it, I'd give it a, a heading. 
so when you see the headings, uh, you can uh, see that I'm uh, sort of branding it in a, in a certain sense. Now as I'm working on this, I'm thinking to myself, this kind of bullet writing, this kind of writing, I think, is what the internet seems to thrive on. Uh, the, the, the psychology or the sense of time on the internet, you want, people tend to want quick information and they want the facts. They want a very concise and precise language on the facts. And as I go through this, I, I think to myself, well, if we can go back to the board, for instance, uh, uh, and you know, who knows if anybody will work with this, work with me on this. But you know, for instance, everything is about links. You know, so Ignatius Loyola, um, uh, or you know, Paraguay, where the Jesuits had uh, a, a major. Um, well, it was an Indian theocracy. If you ever saw the film *The Mission*, that's 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 was Paraguay. So they treated the Indians as the citizens of their new polity. It's one of the first places in the world with universal liter literacy. Do you remember in *The Mission* there was an Indian symphony orchestra? Uh, there was a very high level of um, sophisticated civilization in, in Paraguay. But uh, what I'm getting at is. Uh, as I'm working on this type of prose, I'm thinking uh, that uh, these can all be links. It's all about linking, right? So you're, you're reading through the, the text and you want to know more about that. You click on it. Uh, it's starting to occur to me that the internet really demands a new kind of literature that you just write differently when you're writing for the internet. You've got to think where, where people are at. And uh, I want to talk a lot about the internet in this context, in this course, in globalization studies. As I see it, uh, we're not coping with it that well in university. I, I ask students, well, what are other professors telling you about, say, Google? Um, I think there's a sense, well, you know, it's really not that good if you're getting the information from the internet. It would be better if you're going to the library and getting it in books. And uh, that's the way we did it, and it's sort of more kosher, more respectable that way. Uh, and yet, Google, I'll repeat this again, I think that there's never been a research tool in history remotely like it. And it changes the entire landscape of information. And it changes our whole relationship to information. Yeah. Uh, I guess. My question about that is just what? How do you know that the information on it's legitimate? You know, just because that's the that's been my argument as well. Is like yeah. there's this great resource there, but yeah, I guess that's the response that I've come up with yeah. or come to several times. And there's no the problem is really no different with published literature. Just because it's in a book, just because it's in a newspaper, doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Uh, so you you know part of what you we're doing here, one has to address in higher level studies is how do you assess a work, its, its authority, its credibility. So you look in the footnotes, you, you read reviews, you try to get a sense of, you know, is this author well respected in their field? Uh, is, does, a, does the author have an agenda? Uh, you know, we all have agendas, we all have biases, there's nothing wrong with that. We all need to have a way to view and interpret things, but you want to try to penetrate what that is. So you can, you know, is, is the person writing trying to evangelize for a religion or a political party or raise money for a cause? Um, and, and that doesn't discredit in any way. Uh, it may, uh, but you just, you just make those assessments. So I think the internet just ups the ante. It just makes it all even more complicated. And, um, but how do you, um, you know, how do you evaluate what's true and what isn't? Uh, um, one of the things I find is, you, as you as you surf around, if you see the same information repeated again and again, you know, you see something once and then you see the same information come up in another context, it gives me confidence that, you know, probably is, it has a good, a better chance to be true, and if you see it you know, replicate it again and again. So Google would help you to understand the landscape of literature. 
you know, every topic has a kind of canon, uh, a sort of recognized uh, authority in the field or a book that is seen as the definitive book you can't, or the, the best book. Uh, you couldn't address a topic in a, in a, in a deep and uh, credible way unless you took into account you know, the best things written. On it, so so I don't see the internet as in any way more tainted or less tainted than any kind of published literature, uh, but it 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 raises uh, it, it just there's so many more dimensions to it, but to but whatever the problems are, just the reality that you can take these phrases and and so I find you know as I as I write this, um, if we go back here, the origins of Calvinism. Uh, well, I found myself um, thinking, well, if you can combine big subjects in the same little essay, if you can take words that Google will recognize and you put two big phrases together, uh, you know, that creates a certain synergy. So part of, I guess, the strategy of working on the net is you want people to look at what you're doing. So how, how's, how's Google going to find it? And, and who's going to go to it? And of course, Google is so interesting because it ranks. It's got a mind. The internet is making, is using the history of all of these searches to rank what is, uh, you know, what, what, are the, what are the main sites. So um, this is a big step forward to be able to offer this to you. Okay, for instance, this phrase, uh, I, I think, well, okay, I've got, a, I've got a view of the Declaration of Independence and I've got a view of the War on Terror. Why not combine the two? Why not write an essay, 1776 to 2001, you know, from the Declaration of Independence to the War on Terror? So both of those phrases are going to be very prominent, important phrases, but who's combined them yet? You know, who's put them in a single phrase? Uh, so, so I'm 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 experimenting with this, <clears throat> and uh, who knows? There might be some uh, willingness to or interest in taking part in this, or you know maybe we could. This might become a a uh, a uh, like a Wikipedia type of project where you know people come up with with suggestions for what what are the events. On globalization since 1492, so so that's uh, where I'm going to uh, go tonight. So I, I I have the security of knowing you have this. This is, you know, 40 pages, um, and you also have the outline here. If we can go back to the docu camera, and uh, I, I've never worked as hard on an outline before. Um, you know, I, I worked for days and days on this outline. Um, these topics are, give, should give you a hand in identifying your uh, research project, your essay. So have you read, you know, the way I've described uh, what uh, the essay project is? Uh, the role of European imperialism, 1492 to 1945, is the primary agency of globalization. The response of indigenous peoples to the inroad of imperial, national, and corporate colonialism. Uh, so those those two points, in a in a sense, uh, define the major structure that I've seen so far in terms of globalization. Imperialism, the expansion of empires, is a force of globalization. But then there is the resistance to that expansion, and that resistance involves creating larger and larger alliances and bigger and bigger conceptions of how you see yourself. If you uh, oppose uh, imperialism as Nitsitapi, as Blackfoot, uh, you're weaker than if, you, if you're Blackfoot, Cree, um, Ojibwe, um, Haida. Uh, there's something called uh, the Assembly of First Nations. There's something called the World Council of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, so there's all kinds of ways that uh, globalization takes place. It's not all about imperialism and empire building. The responses to it also create forms of linkage. And the, the, the word that keeps coming to my mind is reconfiguration. Reconfiguration. 
when explorers went out from Europe to other parts of the world, they created new networks, brought in new influences, uh, opened communications to different parts of the world, and thus created a consciousness between different peoples who hadn't been linked before. So it, it reconfigures things. Um, I've written um, a five-page essay myself on, uh, I call it the broad themes and perspectives in the interpretation of globalization. So uh, this is not um, picked up from somewhere. It's not copy and paste. I've, I, I, I worked on this for this course. And uh, so this may give you something of an anchor. Let me just pick it up. Uh, I'll just read some of this uh, prose um, into um, the record here. While the word globalization is a recent one, the process it describes, the processes it describes are very old, at least as old as 1492. That's the year when Christopher Columbus set out to prove by sailing westward towards the Orient that the Earth is a round orb capable of, capable of being circumnavigated. While Columbus stumbled on the Western Hemisphere rather than the outskirts of India, as he himself believed to be the case, his theory that the world is round turned out to be correct. The wide dissemination of this knowledge about the character and shape of our global home establishes the basis for the contention embodied in the title of this course that the modern era of globalization really begins in 1492. The era of European discovery and exploration initiated by Columbus immediately raised uh, all sorts of questions and issues that continue to lie near the heart of the debate over globalization. Essentially, these questions come down to issues concerning how decisions affecting the global future are to be made and how ownership and control of the Earth's natural resources are to be apportioned and legitimized. Uncertainties about how to deal with these issues continues to provoke political disagreement and controversy. This heritage of provocation goes back to 1493 when uh, the Roman Catholic Pope donated all the Western Hemisphere to the sovereign of Spain and Portugal. And this is not rhetoric. There is, uh, as you'll see in uh, the chronology here, uh, 1493, a papal bull is entitled Inter Ketera, Pope Alexander VI donates the Western Hemisphere, so that's the word used in the actual document, to the imperial crown of Spain. Uh, the indigenous peoples of the Americas are not consulted, nor do they give their consent. This religious theft of a whole hemisphere established a precedent that began a long trend of dispossession and disempowerment of indigenous peoples that has never been terminated or reversed to this day. So, for instance, we're on land that was uh, once Hudson's Bay Company charter land, the Old Man River, which is right out the front, the front or back door, depending on how you look at it, you know, about 100 yards away from this building, runs into James Bay, runs into the Hudson's uh, Bay. Uh, I guess the watershed starts up at uh, going to the Sun Road at uh, um, that pass up there. So. Uh, in 1869, 1870, there was a transfer of that land from the Hudson's Bay Company to the Dominion of Canada. Indigenous people had no say in it, and of course Louis Riel took a stand about that. Uh, Thomas Jefferson purchases Louisiana from Napoleon in 1803. Is there anybody consulted who lives, actually lives there? It's like what happens in Africa. At the end of the 19th century, Africa is just cut up south of the Sahara among European powers, Belgium, uh, Portugal, Germany, France, England, <clears throat> Britain. They, they divide up Africa. There's no consultation with the indigenous peoples. Alaska, Alaska sold by Russia to the United States in 1867. The Free Trade Area of the Americas, which we're going to talk about presently, uh, 2001 is when they start talking about it. Uh, that was the point I was trying to make uh, when Sergeant Grant Kramer visited me in my office uh, and questioned me, uh, interrogated me about the, uh, the conference we were organizing to, to, to discuss that subject. So uh, to return to the text, uh, 
So this heritage of provocation goes back to 1493 when the Roman Catholic Pope donated all the Western Hemisphere uh, to the sovereign of Spain and Portugal. This astounding denial of the rights of many tens of millions of indigenous peoples to jurisdiction in themselves and their Aboriginal lands established patterns of exclusion and hierarchies of power that remain very much alive to this day. From 1492 until the end of the Second World War, European empire building was the most influential agency in the creation and elaboration of those networks of trade, communication, migration, and warfare that drove the complex of processes which might be described as globalization. A key factor in this thrust of globalization is dependent on <clears throat> technological innovation in transport and communications, which have seemingly compressed space and accelerated time. And I think that is a, an increasingly central idea that uh, in the 20th century, Albert Einstein comes up with something called the theory of relativity. And lo and behold, he tells us time isn't actually running the same speed everywhere all, all over the universe. It's actually time can be compressed, time can be stretched. This was a shocking re revelation. If even time is, is not fixed, if even space is not fixed, what else is not fixed? Things that had just been assumed to be true. So I think the 20th century was a crisis dealing with relativity. Uh, and we continue to accelerate time, in a sense, and bend space with our, with our communications technologies. Uh, and at one point, these ships that cir could circumnavigate the planet, that was a communications technology. You know, the, the airplane was a communications technology. You just take the sail and you turn it the other way, and you, it turns out the sail, you can fly, you can fly the plane. Uh, Henry Ford and the proliferation of automobiles just changed the entire relationship to, to space. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, these computers demand that we cut up time into, you know, you take a billionth of a second and then cut it up into a billion more. Uh, you know, the, the, the way we're, we're cutting up time into the tiniest pieces. As I said before, you know, anybody who's gone from snail mail to email will appreciate you know, a different relationship to time. Imagine when you're running these empires and you have to send out letters on sail ships and it takes two months to get there and then it gets read and then the governor, the person on the spot, sends back a request asking for information or direction or whatever. So you know, the, the whole relationship to time would be so different under those conditions. And uh, so uh, that is a big part of, I think, globalization as, as, we're, as we're coping with it or failing to cope with it. If we can go back to the text. Uh, the effect of alterations in human relationships to time and space has broadened the range and form of possible interaction among human beings. While the imperial expansion of European influences include the voluntary migration of white immigrants or the involuntary migration of black slaves formed the dominant thrust of globalization over almost 500 years. Globalization has also been advanced by the efforts of indigenous people outside Europe to resist colonial expansion and oppression. The thrust of this anti-imperialist globalization has come about because of the need to build broad confederacies of shared struggle and common understanding to oppose the empire building of the European powers. There is a huge identification with the Palestinians. All over the planet, the Palestinians are supported uh, when you have these UN meetings. Many, many countries will take these positions against the United States, against Israel, in support of the Palestinians. As I see it, this is a reflection of the fact that most people experience European empire building as a force coming at them. As a, as a, not as an expansion of frontiers, an expansion of opportunity, but as an imposition and a, uh, something disjointing you from your past and diminishing your ca capacity to express self-determination and your own relationships to one another, to the land, to, to resources. Um, and this process goes on. I'll just indulge myself with another paragraph or so. Uh, the emergence of the United States from the British Empire in 1783 was based on a successful episode of anti-imperial struggle. 
Clearly the failure, however, to integrate black slaves and indigenous peoples into the American Revolution and into citizenship in the newly created United States contributed to the perpetuation of patterns and precedents of exclusion with significant consequences for the kind of globalization uh, which continues to prevail until this day. Uh, Alyssa, can we go to the, you know, just go back and forth between the text and uh, I'm just, uh, it's kind of a revelation. I can actually read the text off the monitor. I'm not reading it off here. So we could go back to the document and, and, and get some dynamism going there. Uh, the dominant motif of globalization continues to draw more heavily on the legacy of imperial expansion than on the legacy of those who have resisted uh, enslavement, genocide, colonial disenfranchisement, and the appropriation and reapportionment uh, of the natural resources contained in Aboriginal lands of Indigenous peoples. It remains to be seen if those who gathered at Seattle, Quebec City, and Genoa to oppose the expansionary thrust of corporate-driven globalization will place themselves in the historical tradition of the American revolutionaries of 1776, who of course excluded big parts of you know, the Indigenous people, the black slaves, or in the deeper heritage of those who continue to oppose forms of imperial globalization which began with uh, transformative events of 1492. So, uh, so let me go back to, uh, yeah. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, so just going back about a minute or two, um, you were talking about time having accelerated and space having shrunk down. Is it actually more that that it's simply allowed the movement of capital to accelerate rather than like in terms of like you're when you're talking about you know sending a letter to you know someone sends a letter or orders from England it takes six weeks to get to wherever they make some decisions they send back response there's you know a massive lag time between uh, order and response. Really, to me, the, the difference between that and airplanes and internet boils down to the to the ease and, and, and just movement of capital, like the accelerated movement of capital. And what is capital these days? Let's think about it. What what is capital? Well, it's money, it's property, it's investment. But the most fluid kind of capital is simply digital information. It's simply bits and bytes on the internet. And how is all of this uh, regulated? And who is you know, licensing uh, the right to create these bits and bytes and send them around? Um, now, there's so many ways to look at this and think about this. Uh, and these are huge topics. Think of the stock market. Think of the reality that information in this day and age much information might deteriorate in its value. It has, if you know something is going to happen, uh, the, the decision just came out to do with Martha Stewart or whatever. Uh, you know, Poland's uh, currency rating is just is going to go down any minute. I mean, strategic information can be worth millions of dollars more at a, in a flash of a moment, and in five seconds it might deteriorate. Like the stock market is so sensitive. Uh, so strategic information can be a thousand times more valuable than it might be ten, 10 seconds later. You get your bid in and it's just before the plum, plummet or the, the, the jump. So the concept that information itself uh, you know, takes on this new kind of valuation, then uh, the ability to uh, transfer money in different currency exchanges, like there's not only stock exchanges, one of the big exchanges where you buy and sell money. I'm going to buy, you know, the, the Polish whatever it is, or the Ugandan whatever it is, or the Egyptian whatever it is. I'm going to sell uh, my yen. I'm going to buy dollars. I'm going to buy Canadian dollars. I'm going to, uh, you know, the, the, this is huge. Uh, apparently, all the capital that exists in the world, if I'm understanding what I read properly in um, Grider's book, One World Ready or Not, uh, like 27 trillion exchanges every month. So the amount of capital being exchanged, and then of course uh, 
all of this is, uh, so much of this is speculation. It's not really creating any real value. There's nothing of uh, substance being created as, 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 you know, if you invest in a factory or a plant or invest in your education or, you know, there's all kinds of uh, ways that you can invest money that create new things, new actual productive capacities or increased uh, capacities in our minds, for instance. Uh, uh, I mean, that could be considered a kind of investment. But this speculation is uh, not creating any, any real value. Uh, should there be a tax on it? Uh, and and what, what does it mean if you're in government, you're trying to run a country, uh, but the real vote is taking place every second in the currency exchange? So you can't really do this, you can't really do that because it's going to affect your currency. So, you know, yes, you can vote in and out the government, but the real uh, election is taking place in, in the currency markets. So the acceleration is, uh, you know, it, it's huge. It, and we, we feel it in our lives. Like we just, you know, cell phones, all the capacities of the internet. How do we, I mean, uh, what, what, happens in our, what happens in our lives when all of us are dealing with the fact that we have access to maybe a thousand times more information than we might have had 10 years ago, or certainly you know, our parents had, like a thousand times more information. Our brains aren't structured any differently. Our thought processes don't work any more quickly. So how do we, how do we um, analyze information? How do we construct interpretations so that's what I'm working on in a sense. Okay, so if we go back to the board here, you know, facts. So I point you at the, uh, at the chronology, and I can, with some assurance, say, okay, these are facts. This happened in 1493. This happened in 1512, uh, and give a, a, a precy of the facts. Um, but uh, at some point, there's just any, a limitless number of facts. You've got to do something with those facts. You've got to come up with an interpretation, some way, something that the facts lead you to understand. And I think it also works the other way, that if you don't have an interpretation, you have real difficulty processing these facts because you, have, you need a structure to, to, to place these facts in. And I think you can see that... Uh, you know, is a great crisis of our time. You just deal with people in society and you can see a lot of people have no structure. So, you know, what's left wing? What's right wing? How is the NDP different than the conservatives? What's the history? You know, there's, there's no structure there. Um, uh, so uh, this is, uh, I can't stress enough that, yeah, we're going to go and deal with facts here, but I'm also trying myself and trying to work in this educational context to say, how do, we, how do we go about coming up with interpretations that, are, that make sense in today's terms? And so I think with Google, for instance, you, know, you, you have so much information immediately accessible, uh, but you need to have an interpretive structure to, to deal with this information. So how do we develop these interpretive structures? So we, we can't, I'm, I'm just not going to allow myself the sort of snobbery of saying, well, when you do your papers, you know, you really shouldn't be using Google. You should be going to the library. And I don't like to see internet uh, things in your bibliography. Of course, you know, there's a big problem because if, if you're citing the internet, uh, well, the whole idea of citation is you can go and find the reference. If, uh, you know, why, why should I believe just because it's you're saying that this person says this. I want to go and see for myself what the source is. Okay, here's the source. You find it in this journal, such and such a date. You know, you go into the library stacks. It's going to be there. It's going to be there for 100 years, 1,000 years. Uh, the internet, you put, you put your, your web citation. How do you know it's going to be there in a, in a year? Or it's not going to be reconfigured. So, so it really doesn't do the job of you know, giving you a firm basis to say this is this is the basis of this of this fact or this assertion. Um, nevertheless, it's there. It is, uh, and and you know you can find lots of refereed good 
solid literature on the, on the internet. And, and, uh, and you also find this very intense bullet sort of writing, which is very helpful when you're, when you're stressed and you're trying to do a lot of work and, and you want to get the information quickly. I keep having to really remind myself, as, I, as I'm, I'm writing a lot these days, uh, volume two submitted uh, of the bowl with one spoon. Um, but you know, as I'm working with something and I get a, I did not, don't I remember something about that? And didn't I hear something about it? Wasn't there something there? To remind myself, you can find out. If you know the key word or whatever, you can just find out. You can find out in 30 seconds. Uh, and uh, so doesn't that change the way we think about books, for instance? Certainly ch changes the way I think about what, what I'm doing when I'm writing in that I'm thinking, well, you know, the, people aren't going to go to the books just for the information. What you need in the book is some kind of what's it all mean? How does it all fit together? How, how do we integrate it? So this is, this is uh, the dynamic of globalization studies, which is a small little initiative. You know, I'm not 100 people marching forward. Uh, uh, I'm trying to figure this out myself. I don't think I could have done this when I was 30 or 40 years old. Uh, and I don't think I could have really even sort of attempted it without Google. Uh, the, you know, the reality that, uh, well, there's a, a group in Africa there, and what about them? Who are they? Well, boom, 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 find out, you know. So, um, so interpretation is a kind of a, a big word. How is interpretation connected to fact, opinion? We'll come back to that, but uh, imagery. And I haven't been using uh, too many imageries. Uh, I've been using mostly uh, text. But uh, I thought this might be a, an interesting way to introduce imagery. Anybody recognize this moment in history? Andy, do you want to? Uh, as I recall, that's when Bush flew to Iraq to, uh, but he, he, he just happened to fly in on a, in a fighter, that's all, and landed on an aircraft carrier. Yeah, so this is uh, the, uh, an aircraft carrier that had been engaged in the invasion of Iraq, which began in the spring of uh, 2003. Then there was a media event, one of the biggest media events ever, I think, uh, on board the USS Abraham Lincoln. And there was a reason it was on board the USS Abraham Lincoln. Now, I, I would uh, suggest that uh, imagery is really how our society works. Uh, you look at television. I used to act in TV commercials a lot. I grew up in Toronto. Um, I was a member of the Association of Canadian Television uh, Radio Actors. And um, so I very quickly noticed, if you watch television, the uh, amount of money they spend on the commercial, the, the intensity of the media uh, presentation where every detail is, is uh, uh, cultivated, is, is, is designed, is calculated. I mean, I, I was uh, in a uh, studio, uh, it was just when they were introducing uh, me and the boys and our beer. So it was a scene of you know going out in skidoos out to the cabin out in the bush somewhere. And so we're the guys out in the bush. And in fact, we're in downtown Toronto, you know, but it's it's made up to look like we're inside a cabin having a, a beer. And uh, I noticed that there was one guy whose job it was to, with the teapot. This is in a big shot to to make sure the teapot was spewing steam and that the teapot was properly lit, the steam was properly lit so you could see the steam on the tea. And, and there was you know, all kinds of little details, like there's like 50 people all around the set looking at this detail and that detail. I mean, this is a beer commercial in Canada. There's huge profits to be made in beer. And this was either Molson's or Labatt's had uh, lost market share. There was a guy with uh, an Elvis you know, he had sideburns. He had on, literally had on uh, bell-bottom pants that were checkered. They called him Cubby, and he apparently was the genius of the beer commercials. Eh? And uh, so he had worked for one company, and the other company had 
lured him away and offered him some fabulous amount of money. Anyway, he was, uh, we were making the beer commercial, but he was uh, getting an idea for another commercial. Eh? So there he's sitting there and secretary's just hanging off his every word, you know, and he's, okay, we're at the, the plant, right? And, and it's just before the, the guys get off work. And it all has to do with uh, guys' psychology, like women don't buy beer on any, you know, big level. And apparently uh, the way the beer market is structured, there's the, the working guy beer, the guy who doesn't feel comfortable with his sexuality. And so, you know, that, those scenes, it'll be mostly guys. And then there's a, a, a more upper class level of beer. I guess it would be like 50 and blue, eh? 50. Well, that was the, that was the era, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm dating myself. But this is the way they actually, you know, this is conceive of, of, of what's going on. So, so the, the higher level of, of, of social class, apparently those guys are comfortable with their sexuality and think they're macho and think they can. So, so uh, anyway, that's how, that's how it's structured. I mean, I, this is fascinating to me to hear this. And he's, he's, you know, getting a great idea and for the next beer commercial. And he says, okay, uh, we're, it's, it's a barmaid and she's getting ready. And, the, and then we go to the factory and the guys are just about to come out of the factory. And, and then, you know, they go over to the, the, the bar and uh, she's just preparing for it. And then he's giving a job description, like what the woman should look like. She's says, hmm, she should, uh, she should look like the girl next door, but you can get in her pants. <laughs> you know, and these women are writing this out, and this was, you know, this is what, this is, this is the, the characterization he gave. What I'm trying to get at is that uh, the uh, intensity of, uh, you know, of marketing and the way that we're, we're penetrated you know our deepest fears, our 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 inner, our inner um, desires, our hopes, our aspirations. You know that we won't be loved. We will be loved. We. This is the level that marketing works on. That this is this is the level of imagery, and I think you know it may seem like I'm an ephemeral point here, but I'm trying to get something very serious through here. That our world is not working on logic. It's not working on really assessing the facts. The, the reality is that we're being spun. You know, the University of Lethbridge is a, has a public relations department. Every corporation has a public relations department. NDP has a public relations department. The Alliance has a public relations department. You know, if I look at this, if, if I go to the, the docu-camera here, uh, you know, what is this image saying here? Uh, who put this image together? What is the message? I mean, obviously the message is the, uh, the conservative party are multicultural. And uh, I don't know if I would have been interested to see if there was one person in this group who, who, who wasn't a visible minority. But obviously this is, this is structured and it, it speaks to us on, on, on a, a level that uh, we might be not fully cognizant. In fact, that's how advertising works. We're not really thinking about it that much. We're kind of preoccupied in doing other things. And so, uh, so you know, we're more vulnerable. And we all think we're not affected by it. But why, they wouldn't spend millions and millions of dollars on it. So this is an advertisement, I believe, for the uh, military-industrial complex. And uh, essentially, uh, this was uh, set up on the USS Abraham Lincoln with the subtle message that the invasion of Iraq was to free the people of Iraq from tyranny, to free the slaves, that the Iraqis were now to be free. And uh, so the concept of, of it being in the... Uh, in the um, on the USS Abraham Lincoln was conceived very purposely, very, very closely. So I'm uh, going to quote myself, the American Empire in the Fourth World, Anthony J. Hall. Um, 
and I wrote this uh, just as this ceremony was uh, taking place. The uh, or I'd, I'd seen it, and suddenly I could see it all. And I went to the website, and uh, there was the Gettysburg Address. In the Gettysburg Address, which was given on this battlefield, it's the most one of the most famous speeches in human history. Abraham Lincoln is dealing with the reality that there's a secession movement in the United States. There's a civil war. 600,000 people are killed in the Civil War or die as a result of the Civil War. It's one of the most ruthless, um, something happening that I'm not oh, unaware of. Everybody okay? So uh, he's having to try to reconcile the country. Uh, he's the president of the United States, including of, in his view, the people in the South. And he's up the ante. He's declared the slaves to be free. He's abolished slavery in the South. And that's the famous phrase where he says, you know, a government of the people, for the people, by the people. And uh, it all has to do with uh, going back to the Declaration of Independence, which speaks of the equality of people, and, uh, and uh, affirming in 1862, many years after the Declaration of Independence, that this is what it's about. It's the Civil War was to rise to the higher ideals of what America should stand for. And so when I went to the website uh, and saw the speech, there it was, of the Iraqis, for the Iraqis, by the Iraqis. The phrase enslaved, you know, freeing the slaves was actually in there. And so this was highly conceived to uh, convey a certain image. Any of you seen the film Independence Day? where the President of the United States fights the evil outer space uh, people uh, from a jet pilot, from a jet plane. He leads a global coalition from a jet plane. And he's actually the President of the United States zipping around in a jet plane. And uh, so I'm, I'd be surprised if there wasn't some input from the uh, people who did the film Independence Day. There's also uh, the film Triumph of the Will which is uh, the, one of the most famous documentaries ever made. It's a propaganda film. So when I talk about, if I go to the board here, uh, propaganda. Actually, that phrase comes from uh, Roman Catholic Church, propagation. Propagation of the gospel. So the Roman Catholic Church are, in a sense, the original propagandists. That's where the word comes from. So uh, this is uh, propaganda. Triumph of the Will was uh, based on the 1936 rally at Nuremberg. And it was part of the mobilization of public opinion in Germany to support what would become the war effort, the invasion of uh, the effort to take over Europe. And how do you get people psychologically prepared for that? So Lily uh, Riesenstahl made, made a film, The Triumph of the Will, and its filmmakers recognize it as a brilliant uh, propaganda film. 